Hello, my friends. Welcome back to The Conversation, the Naked Leadership Podcast, where no conversation is too vulnerable to have. Today, we have a great episode for you. Henry Putzia. he trained me on how to say that last name, so I'm positive it's right. He brings it all to the call as we talk about rising and resilience. Just a quick note before we begin, we were traveling and recording this remotely from one of our off-site leadership trainings and summits. And so every once in a while, the internet gets a little bit slow and uh, you know what that sounds like. So I apologize for some of the audio in this episode, but do not let that distract you from Hendre's message and all of the good stuff that can be found in this episode. Let's go. Today, we have Hendre Katsia with us. Hendre. Hey, good morning. How are you? I'm great. Nice to be with you, Chad. Hi, Dan and Adrian. Nice to meet you guys. Ready? Hey, Hendre. Hendre owns a company called the Center for Advanced Coaching. That's correct, Hendre? That is correct. I've, I've had that company now for, I believe, just over 10 years. Great. And he's a, a global executive coach and executive development professional. Hendre, we wanted to have you on today, and we're going to talk about resilience. <laughs> um, yeah. this, is a, this is an amazing, amazing conversation, and I'm, I'm really excited to uh, dive into some of the paradoxes that exist in resilience. Sure. And, and um, some of the tension there, but also some of the beauty. And uh, it's just good to have you on here. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. You call it the art of rising. Yes. I love that. The art of rising. And uh, it's, it's interesting as, as we, from an outside perspective, view some of the comeback stories, view some of these experiences in people's lives when they come back from something difficult or hard, and it often looks like art. It sure does. It sure does. And, and, you know, I think we are very familiar with the story of, um, you know, somebody going through a, a difficulty. And, and we as people, I am good at telling the story that what got me to this crisis point, right? If you're um, familiar with the hero's journey of Joseph Campbell, right? We have the, you know, there's a call to action or the call to adventure, and then there's some support and and then, you know, deep, uh, departing. So people leave and they go off on, on their uh, exciting journey and then they hit trials. And most people confuse trials for the crisis, right? They think that, oh, because it gets hard, this is a crisis. And the trial is not a crisis, right? Crisis is, you know you're in a crisis because there's a demarcation. Something dies. Either you or something in you or something around you dies. So, you know, you hit the crisis, and, or the, the trials, then there's an approach, right? There's this um, getting closer, kind of the calm before the storm. And then um, in Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, there's that final crisis point of something where there's a massive, you know, a massive shift and uh, something dies. And then, you know, there's the other half of the circle. The other half of the circle is, uh, is receiving or recognizing a treasure and then returning and I find so often that we have a society that is fascinated with the trials, the call to adventure, departing, or this, the right side of it. But the left side of the, of the, of the equation, excuse me, the rising, how do, I, how do I make a comeback? How do I, if I've been through the crisis, what are those things? And I feel like that part of the world is unexplored. I mean, if you think about even you know, the, the parable of the lost son. It tells the story about how he got these gifts from his dad and he you know, went to a far off country, spent the money, did all this bad stuff, and finally had this come to Jesus moment, if you would. And, uh, and then it tells about how he, how he arrives back at, um, you know, at his father's place. But nobody tells the story that if this guy was at some far ass land, way far away, he had to walk all the way back. And what happens on the journey back? What happens when you have to come all the way back from where you've gone? And, and what does that rising mean? Because we think rise happens in a moment, but I actually think rising is a journey. It is a journey uh, all the way back to a certain point, to a certain decision, but you don't get to rise back to the way things were because things have changed along the way. So this whole idea of the art of rising, of 
of making a comeback and the resilience that that takes is exploring the journey post-crisis, post a difficult thing. And what does that look like for you to come back to form? Uh, you know, if you think about who's probably had one of the long, longest rise experiences, it's Tiger Woods, right, to come years. So that's kind of, you know, part of what I am interested in is what's that resilience of being able to make a comeback? You know, I'm, uh, how, how is that, you know, a lot of times, Hendre, that's, a, a, and I know I'm attracted to what I do because of what's gone on in my own life and how I've been called into life. And I wonder how that fits in your life story. Like, is that a theme throughout your life? And if it is, how, what are some of the comebacks you've, you know, like you, you would, you went through in your life that were that demonstrated that part of the hero's journey? You know, I, I would say it's a, it's a theme that I've resisted because I, I don't like the idea that I've gone through a crisis. I'd like to just ignore the fact that there's been a crisis or, <laughs> or you know, at times just hope, oh, let's hope it's not so, right? And, and I think often people confuse resilience with the ability to hold on. And, and sometimes resilience requires you letting go of something, right? It, that crisis point of saying, hey, there's a finishing as an ending. And I would say, you know, Dan, in my own life, I think this, it's a recurring theme. I, if I take a look at the amount of hero's journeys I've been through, and now that I have some kind of recollection of what that hero's journey is and how it applies to, to my world, when I was 15, uh, my father died. And that, that had a significant impact on my life. And when I was 17, uh, I had been scouted for the 1996 Olympics 4x400 uh, in South Africa. And in June of, of 1991, I went to go play a rugby game uh, with some my, my, my mother's signature uh, in order to get permission to go play the game and had my knee torn off completely in the game and, you know, lost the future in sports that I had, you know, been preparing for for many years. Um, you know, I think in my career, there have been times where, you know, I started a business and I thought it was going to go a certain way and then it didn't turn out that way. Um, and through, you know, some crisis. And, you know, I've gone through a personal crisis in, in you know, uh, being married for a very long time and then, that marriage not working out the way I thought it was going to be. And then what does it mean to rise up at an individual level? You know, I, I always thought, you know, midlife crisis is just people being, you know, emotional. It is a massive deal. It is real and it is an animal. It is a, you know, I, and so, you know, I would say for me, resilience is, has been true. I think it happens in, in, and kind of these cycles happen sometimes in smaller things. They're seasonal. Uh, because they do come around every year. There's a reason why there's freaking winter every year and the trees lose their leaves and there's a dying in that. And there's a, I think there's a part that that's just recognizing there's a seasonal resilience that happens anyway, a cycle in your business, um, a quarterly report, you know, let's go for a quarter. And then I think there are big demarcations in your life of really big cycles. So I've certainly gone through, uh, you can pick any one of them, Dan, if you want to talk about them. So, but there may there be plenty. <laughs> so I think it'd be great to give um, get an idea when we talk about resilience, when we use that word. What are we talking about? I'm, I'm fascinated with this idea, Henry, that in traditional storytelling, in most traditional storytelling, it's we call it the resolution, the falling action and transition into resolution. When you talk about the five step arc of a story that rising is often not given very much time yes. in the story and not very much detail. And I'm actually very interested in that. I've never thought about that as a storyteller, which is, is, is very interesting. I want to know, like when we talk about resilience, when we talk about rising, what are we talking about? So, you know, I would say resilience is the ability to rise to the present moment. Right. Usually what happens for people and for organizations even is they will have a certain peak or a certain point of, of success and, you know, life will happen or, you know, a, in a business a com competitor will come and take your market or something like that. And 
inevitably hard times come. And often the challenge there is we either want to go back to where we were before, we don't want to face the enemy that we have. And for most people, what happens is we get stuck in the past or overwhelmed by the present and lose sight of the future. And I think a big part of what resilience is, Jad, is the ability to look to the future, not from a fantastical place of, uh, or point of being, we're saying, I wish things were different, but bringing back to a place of commitment, a place of, of hopefulness, and then a place of action of rising to the future. And I think for me, uh, as I take a look at my, my experience, the crisis point usually happens at some at, at one point. And my willingness or unwillingness to face it determines how long I actually get to stay in it. Right? So I, I have some contribution to that crisis point. And I think resilience is the ability to rise from whatever experience there is. For instance, if you, you know, I think this relational breakdown that I had caused a significant amount of depression for me. And I, I engaged it, you know, I think um, I engaged it, I indulged it, in, and to a large degree, I was stuck. I had a hard time getting out of it. Um, and, you know, listen, I went to therapy. I, I, you know, I'm in the coaching business. I got a coach. I've worked and, you know, tried to self-coach myself, myself out of stuff, podcasts, all of these things. And somewhere along the line, I think I had made the pain my identity rather than recognizing, well, what is the future that I want? And what is the future that I'm looking for? And amazingly for me, you know, resilience is, is the ability to dream, design, and commit to a new future. And that ability, that, that willingness to then say, okay, I will dream again, feels so counter the crisis experience, especially since, you know, uh, the crisis affords people a lot of things, especially in our society that is, um, loves identifying with pain as a validation for existence. Well, it's interesting you say that because it, it's uh, when I hear you say that you identified with the with the pain. Uh, is that does what does that mean to you? Like like, like what does that mean? Well, it, so I had a realization um, some time ago that when I. When I moved the last time, I moved into an, an apartment, and um, you know that place basically represented isolation and loneliness, right? And I I made the pain the conversation, the prevalent conversation of all my life, as if that was the only thing that was going on. I you know became the the place from which I viewed the world. And, and like that's why is that is that mean like like that's why I was doing what I was doing. I'm in this pain, that's why I'm here. I'm in this pain. Yes, I think, I, I think rather than deal with the pain, I, I made the pain my home, right? I, like I allowed it to, to or the, the difficulty or feeling like a victim or whatever, I allowed that whole context to determine uh, my, frame of, uh, my frame of reference, my point of view, like that. And listen, I mean, I'm trained in this stuff, right? I'm supposed to be the one who can, you know, but, you know, I think it's so hard sometimes to get distance from yourself or to detach from stuff until you actually get to a place where, you know, you go through what I would say a, a, is like a rite of passage. And that's the beautiful thing when there's this moment where you can actually detach and you can create this demarcation of that was then and this is now. And, and I think we often avoid creating demarcation points. Like you, in the beginning of the year, we have a New Year's resolution, but we don't really have that place where we say, what am I willing to let go of? What am I willing to rise into? And what type of ritual can I go through that will allow for that rite of passage to happen? I mean, in the church, they have a baptism, right? That is a rite of passage that says that was then and this is now. Um, I think in, in many tribes and cultures around the world, they have this, you know, kind of rite of passage thing. And I think for me, as I've been coaching people over the years, part of the immersion experiences that I create, and I know the work that you guys do, is like a rite of passage, right? It is a gauntlet, if you would, that you go through in your revenant process or 
or your coaching academies that you guys have, it is a process where people come face to face with their own reality, how they've identified with it. Yeah. And, and then there's a, a pre and post of this is what happened before and that's what happened then. And I think sometimes what's so hard in resilience is if, or you know, rising or making a comeback is creating and generating a rite of passage experience that will allow you to demarcate where you are now. Because most of the time, my pre or post is not in my current moment, but in the, the event that happened to me. Before the event, before the divorce, before my father died, before the experience. And so my demarcation is not in the present. My demarcation is way in the past. And so creating a new demarcation for yourself, I think, is a, a very important part of the resilience process. Yeah, when I'm, <clears throat> I'm sitting here thinking, and, and I'm actually really grateful because I remember whenever I was going through my own process over the last three and a half, four years, I remember us, you and I actually having coffee, Andre, and, and you gave me a word uh, that really became a theme for me, which was the word resurgence. Right. And, um, and you, you actually mentioned that, that idea of that parable is like uh, from the ancient text where about the, the guy that had gone off, blown it, it was coming back. And you just mentioned to me, we don't know how long the journey was. And that gave me a lot of, a lot of hope really, because you know, it's like, I think when people are going through a hard time, we think it ought to, to always be faster or we wish it would always be faster. Right. And, and I, I tend to tell myself when I'm, when I'm going through any kind of hard time, whether it's a crisis or just a regular run the mill day hard time, I tend to tell myself it's supposed to feel this way. Yeah. You know, if you, if you take a look at it, Adrian, it's like the, that, uh, the Rocky movies, right? We all love the Rocky movies. Every, Every action movie has an arc of a comeback, right? There's the, but what's the setting of the scene, right? The drama or the pretext, if you would, to the rising, to the final fight is more than half the movie. In fact, it's probably, if the movie's two hours long, you spend an hour and 30 minutes setting the scene, the breakdown, everything that happens. And then the last 20 minutes of the movie is a crescendo of suddenly, you know, Rocky makes a comeback and he works out and you see, and it's all a five minutes seeing him run up the stairs and, and you know, working out. And it's the one song, and we heard that song. And then he fights Drago and it, you know, knocks the living crap out of the guy. It's great. And all of that happens in 10 minutes of a two hour movie. And the reality is, that's probably not true. If we were to say, that, if we were to show the truth about it, the, it might be equal lengths or the comeback might actually be a lot longer. Because let's be real. You don't work out to your tip-top shape in 10 minutes, right? You take Conor McGregor, he knocked that guy out on Saturday night, 40 seconds. It didn't take 40 seconds for him to make a comeback. Oh, isn't it? Years. Yeah, and you see what he went through. You can see the shift in his character as well, right? I mean, he was such, he had changed from this obnoxious, crazy lunatic who had attacked that bus to this to this, you know, there was like a sense of deprecation and, you know, in the interviews prior to the fight, you can tell this guy had a journey of about months of, and maybe, you know, over a year of kind of facing really tough feedback. He was going to get banned. You know, and so, yeah, it makes sense. And if I think about my own relationship with my wife, you know, are the first 15 years of our life, you know, in the first five years we had the, a breakdown you know, where we were about to divorce. But it was a 10-year process of coming back together before we had, you know, the kind of trust where we could really say, oh, we're back. You know, this is new. This is going on. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think, like for Conor McGregor, I think one of his fear was that if he gave up his arrogance and his style, right, his macho, I'm going to get out there, that he would lose his ability to fight. Yeah. Right, that's one of the fears is that, that my skill lies in my my brokenness or or some of the things that I'm doing that are not working. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I think part of the journey is learning to let go that if I shift, if I if I have this demarcation point, if I don't compete with my wife or if I don't, you know, don't do it the way I've always done it, that somehow I'm not gonna die, right? And rather than no, actually if you get to rise into something different and the the same skill sets and the commitment and the good stuff that remains, 
but you actually have to grow some of the, the bad stuff. And I think that's the, that's the key. And I think we identify so deeply with um, many parts of our life that, you know, that we hold on to that and, and don't rise to something new. Um, uh, I'll go back to an older story and then you guys will coach me into something more present. But when I was, uh, as I told you, when I was 15, my father died. And about six months after uh, my father died, a girl that I really liked and was trying to see at the time and, you know, kind of dating, she, uh, she said to me, uh, when will you no longer be the boy whose father died? And I was so offended. I was like, my dad just died six months ago, right? Of course, uh, that's who I am. She's like, no, you, you've basically limited your life to this narrative. Yeah. There's so much more to you, right? There's, I'm not saying that, that you will ever be the boy, not be the boy whose father died, but there's so much more to you. And I think sometimes we allow a particular event or a particular experience to determine the context from which we participate rather than rise to something different. Yeah. And, and I think that is part of that resilience in the rising part that's there. Well, I'm thinking about, <clears throat> I think most of the time when we think about comebacks is something external that's happened. Yeah. Hmm. And I, I'm, and then there are the types of, the types of crises that are internal based on, I mean, I've got plenty of long stories in my, of my life of my own, like mess that I got into that I needed to clean up. And there's all, there's like, so there's external bad, let's just put it in some simple categories, external bad, something bad happens externally, like a father dies, like a company fails, like the, the, the market crashes, some kind of external bad. Then there's like internal bad. And then there's this other type of crisis that comes to mind for me where it's like uh, a, a chosen, like when do we choose crisis? When we actually choose to give up something that is working for the sake of something that's unprecedented or something that's like, it's like the, the me to grade is good or something like yeah, that, right. that idea. Like we, I, I talk about a lot of times with people that are, are coming into one of our companies that we're coaching, fast paced, really great company, on the go, on the go, on the go. And then somebody has come in and they're in this transition period. And they always, they love to say, I'm new. <laughs> right? and and they don't get that there's there's a lot of packed into that concept for them they're just saying they're new as if that doesn't mean anything as, as if that's like a look at the calendar and i invite them to notice about all the all the preciousness that's there in the newness right it's like i'm new around here i'm new and i usually say to them well can we decide when you're not new anymore i, I had exactly the same conversation with the client last week in uh, <laughs> uh, in a, at an offsite you know because like new is a is a cop out for it's not, not a mutual for, not know, right? Oh, I don't really know what's going on here. Yeah. yeah. You don't. I don't have to know. And I don't want to know. Yeah. Right. right. I'm going to take like another five years and not know. Right? Yeah, that's right. But that's, it, it, I mean, it's not unlike this crisis conversation. Because if I decide not to be new, now I'm all of a sudden hyper-responsible. And if I'm responsible, then anything that's not working now is on me. And that's a crisis. Like, oh, shit. Now, now I'm responsible to get this ship turned. And I don't get to hide behind the newness anymore. You know, what's interesting, Adrian, is, is, is as we, I mean, part of what we do is we always listen to people's language, right? And people either language themselves into possibility or language themselves out of possibility. And, yeah. and new is one of those interesting, uh, interesting words that sounds like it's in the present, but it really isn't, right? Oh, I'm new, right? And especially if somebody's new is, not in the present, like I started today, but I started a year ago, then it's a, it's like a covert word of saying they're in the moment, but they really aren't. Right. In part of I'm in the moment from back there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's interesting how I've done that so many times in my, in my life. Oh, I'm going through this. Well, how long have you been going through? Well, two years. Well, no, then you're just staying in it. You're not going through it, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah. Or they'll, they'll say, like, I'm, here's what I'm struggling with. Yes, right? And, 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 and listen, I, I do think that there is a journey. So I don't want to minimize the fact that there is a journey to go through. But part of the process, or and part, of, part of the process, is recognizing where you are in the journey now. Sure. And one of the things I think, excuse me, especially in – relationships and and sometimes in business is shame has such a 
powerful tool or uh, is so powerful to keep us stuck in a in a certain place rather than being able to move on. You know, I think for me, one of my my, my own personal fears is has been you know if I if I rise if I become resilient, does that minimize some of the impact that I've had, or does that you know is that arrogant, or or am I going to leave people behind, right? In in doing that, you know, I remember when I when I left South Africa and, and you know people were like, oh, you're you know why are you leaving? South Africa needs people, and you know how could you do this? And you know the the fear that if I pursue what I'm dreaming, if I pursue what I what I have, am I going to shame other people, or am I going to hurt people, or abandon people? And I think you know it's it's amazing how much misery does freaking love company, yes. right? And rising then calls us to be able to go to that next level and, and explore what else is there. And listen, we've said this all along. I'm sure you have, and I know I have, but sometimes you got to leave some people behind and some things well, behind. And I think the other thing too is, I think innately, at least in my experience from in some of the comebacks I've come through in my life, is that when I decide to come back, I'm going to, I'm going to separate myself from the crowd. Yes. Right, so I'm going to separate myself from the naysayers who, have, you know, don't believe it's possible. Or, you know, I, I work with kids in prison and 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 life and men in prison, men and women in prison. And one of the big things is, you know, when you've done something in your life, people want to define you want to define yourself, but so does the crowd define your life. And so, like, you, let's say you're a kid. I have a friend who's a young kid who was a young kid who committed murder, mm-hmm. and he. He went, he had a, you know, it, was, it was like 25 to life, and he got out actually. And he has, this guy is now a DA. Amazing. Right. But in his process, what he had to come up against was I, if I go for this, going back by the crowd, if I put my, they're going to bring this up, what I've done. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's really interesting. The statistics are very, consistent that, you know, barring a sociopath, basically, it's like only 10% of people who commit murder go out and do it again, right? It's like, yeah. and, and not only that, the people can transform, they can rehabilitate, right? But it's, but the crowd, and you're aware of it, like if I, why, why don't I just accept that this is who I am? That yeah. I really, that my bad act, that my, that this breakdown, that this crisis, is defining me. There's no way I can get out of it because it's who I am, and that and that that tension is what I think we all, as human beings, get excited about because it's hope for me to see somebody who's, you know, like McGregor. Some of his act, actions, you know, are just horrendous, leading up to his and all that. And now the guy comes back. He's grateful for the the second chance. He's a new. You can see there's a newness, a seriousness about. Is what he's up to that he didn't possess before. And I, I, think, I, I think one of the, the, the things we, that you guys do so well is creating a construct for that comeback. Yeah. You know, when we take a look at it, you know, you, we, as we're talking here, we're doing philosophy about it. We're, you know, sharing experiences, everything like that. But there is a framework for a comeback, right? There's a, there's a cons- construct for that. And I mean, that's the work that I do. I know that's the work that you guys do is creating constructs for organizations and individuals to rise, right? To, why, why don't you talk about that, Henry, for you? Like, because you've got such a great, um, I really enjoy working with you because you have such a great way of distinguishing process and constructs. I mean, you frame things well. I think that's, that's go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, that's, that's what's been going on in my mind. I love this conversation about the line of demarcation or this, t- this moment of demarcation, planting the flag, what does it take? When I, which I think is a similar question to what you're asking, Dan, what does it take to plant the flag? So I, I would say, you know, I mean, there's so many different processes you can take a look at there. I mean, I, you know, I've designed many, we've designed some together. You know, I think most of the time, your biggest challenge is people's readiness and willingness to get there, right? And I think often what I tell people is my job 
as if you, if you think about an athlete like Hussein Bolt, right? And he goes down and into the starting blocks. Uh, at least, you know, where I'm from, they would say, on your marks, get set. And then the gun would go off and then you, you know, you'd run. And, you know, there's, we also hear, get ready, set, go. And, and the work that I believe I do is moving people in, in a large degree. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of work just getting people to the, to the track, right? Let's <laughs> just get them there. And, <laughs> and then, and then when they right. get them out of the stands and in the, on yeah, the just, let's just get you on the track, you know, stop your shouting, you know, take your jacket off and get on the track. Um, but I think many, many people confuse this, the ready for the set. You know, the ready is when you're in the starting box. You're there, you've got your lane, you know your vision, you know where you're going. But there's this, there's this window between when you get into the starting block and when the gun goes off, which is a, is a positioning. You move from ready to set, and set is a very uncomfortable position. Because you're basically, you're down on the ground, and all of the tension goes away from your legs, which is your greatest power, strength, and it moves into your shoulders so that you can maximize the boost you can give yourself from your legs, right? It's a, it's a shift in attention. It's a shift in energy. And you can't last there, right? You, you either have to run or get up. But you can't stand there for longer than five to six seconds because, you know, it's just it's an uncomfortable position. And a big part of the construct of the work, and I know I'm using this as a metaphor, is, you know, companies will call you or call me and say, hey, we, we need to do a shift. We need to move from playing to not lose to play to win. And we, you know, can, can we turn around ourselves to all of these things? And, and, you know, inevitably at some conversation, we're going to go, are you guys ready for this? And they're like, yeah, all right, but you're not set. Like, you're not poised to make the change. Readiness is a mind, mindset. Set is a position. It is a create uh, of your environment and your circumstances to match the commitment that you have so that you can take the steps that you're doing. And so for me, I think a big part of the work is moving people from ready to set where they have no choice but to actually do the work. They get face front with that. So what does that look like in, in a company setting or with individuals? A big part of this is reality checking, right? Just bringing people into the moment. I think in organizations, Ted and, and Dan Adrian, is the hardest work is to move people out of nostalgia. Out of nostalgia, yeah. Yeah, I, I would say in, in a company, there are, there are three, three characters that keep you stuck in an organization. So if I'm gonna go and work in an organization, they ask us to do a turnaround or they want us to you know, coach them to performance. Um, you know, I do a series of interviews. I'm sure you guys do the same, same method, but we go in and we do, I'll do a series of interviews with, with people in the range of the business, right? Executives, middle management, you know, some leaders, and then, you know, somebody front office or whatever like that. And, you know, 20, 30 people in order to get kind of a lay of the land, what's going on. And, you know, what's interesting in these conversations is you kind of start hearing what's really going on in the organization. What, what are they doing? And, Inevitably, you're going to find three, three characters that keep it stuck. There's good people and they're great, but the characters that keep the company stuck, the first one is the critic, right? And so the critic is a very interesting person because they speak out, but they don't speak up, right? They have an opinion about stuff, complaint, and they'll talk at the water cooler, but they don't tell their leader. And often that is also because there's no road to speak up, right? There's no vehicle for that. So... I don't think the critic is necessarily a bad guy or a bad person or a bad, um, you know, bad character, but they keep the organization stuck because they have feedback that never lasts. And so what's important for an organization is to create then that environment where feedback can be heard, right? Yeah. I think, I think yep. the critic can be turned around. Yeah, I, we call them the leveler. Yeah. Because they, if they are left to themselves, they will level the, the change because they're going to get people to complain. They'll move people there. So you're right. If there's not an environment to clear that and to actually invite them up to a new conversation to see whether if they're willing to come, then it'll tend to fester. Exactly. And, and, and complaint is human being, right? Every human being complains. I yeah. mean, 
I, if you guys listen, I have like, like at least a half an hour of complaints I could share. But you know, it's, <laughs> it's, I, I think complaint is human being. But for an organization, or if I'm coaching an individual, what I want to do is I want to bring the complaint complaint to a place of responsibility. Right? How can I get you? You know, because complaint often includes blame, and it's them, and it's all of us, and it's kind of the core work of moving somebody from a victim place to a responsible place, or looking at their contribution to the breakdown. Right? So, you know, mm -hmm. it reminds me of a time you and I were mediating between the Toza and the uh, in South Africa. Yeah, and you said it was so beautiful what you said because it was exactly what you're talking about. We were there was this they were they were just so conflicted and we were both looking at each other and you said you know here's the problem the Toza was speaking very directly in very concrete terms and the and the Zulu was speaking in metaphor and because the Zulu which is how they it's their language right it's the way they speak like you I need you to be uh, as honorable as the sun coming up in the morning right and the Toza who speaks really bluntly right to the point feels like he's judging the Zulu for beating around the bush. Like, why don't you get to the point? And then the Zulu's suspicious of the Toza because he feels dishonored and that this guy really doesn't want to listen, mm. right? And so the, the conflict is exactly what Henry said. We had to get to a place where we could say, here's, you guys see this as the conflict. And, and, and this is beautiful. And I think, so, so, you know, the character that keeps the organization stuck is the critic, right? The second character, there is the nostalgia, right? I mean, I, I go into an organization, I'm like, how many of you remember the good old times, right? And everybody raises their hand. Inevitably, you know, and the good old times could have been yesterday or 20 years ago, but there's people who live in nostalgia and they forget that when they were in that time, they were critics, right? <laughs> they hated it, right? They're like, 10 years ago, when things were so great, you were complaining about how much you were getting paid, where you were working, there was no computers were slow, da, 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 whatever. And, and the, so, so the nostalgic is somebody who's not in the present moment. And the work there to transform is bringing people into the current moment, right? And I think that's the part of is bringing somebody into the moment and having some, some vision of the future. So we've got the critic, we've got the nostalgic. The third character, I would say, is the most dangerous one in the organization is the cynic. The cynic is somebody who stopped believing and totally feels like they're owed something. Now there's, there's a difference between a victim who feels unheard and a cynic who feels like they're owed something. Because it's interesting in an organization, the cynic is somebody, even if you give them exactly what they want, plus 10% and an extra day off, they'll still resent you for it because there's resentment there. And, you know, I, I know this is blunt and it might be hard, but I've told organization, it's not worth the money to try and turn around soon. The cynic has to find his own kind of rock bottom to come back to faith. So if you're going to work in an organization, work on the critics, work on the nostalgics, the cynics, you've got to take a long, hard look if you want to do, if you want to invest the money to turn a cynic around. And in an individual level, if I'm coaching, uh, in you know, if I'm coaching, you know, top performer or something like that, I want to take a look in their life where they've become cynical, and that really is the place that we have to do some deep work, a rite of passage to let the past go, to like a baptism, right? Dying to the old. Like yes, you have dreams and that, but you have to let that go, and you actually let it have to let it die, so that you could rise to something. And cynicism or unbelief or feeling like you're owed something is probably, in my mind, the one thing that will steal your future from you, right? So the cynic is the most difficult one to, to turn around, right? And, and often doesn't unless they have this rock bottom experience. There's a fourth character that I think is, is interesting, um, but often gets confused for the critic and that's the contrarian. Right, the contrarian is the person who, who they, they have a different idea. They want to do it differently. You say tomato, they say tomato. Then you're a contrarian, right? You, 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 you look at the world differently. And the contrarian is great for business. The contrarian helps you see something different. People often feel like contrarians are critics, but they're not. 
there are people who, who see the world from a different point of view. They have a different inflection point. And what they do is they actually make the world richer. And I think as an individual, it's important that we have contrarians in our life, that we have, and often the coach is the contrarian in our life, or we have other people in our world that can give us a different point of view because the contrarian is actually great for business. There is a principle in working with contrarians, which I think Jeff Bezos has done a really great job around it. And he said, we have to come bring our organization to a place where we can disagree and commit. Mm-hmm. That, that alignment isn't always agreement. That there are times that I'm going to have to do stuff that I might not be fully bought in intellectually, but I'm going to be, commit myself to a series of actions to an outcome. And because I see it's good for the outcome, it might be not what I would initially choose, but, or, but I value, I can see that it can, it can make a difference for the team for me to align with it. Yeah. Or even if I can't see, I'm willing to, for the sake of the team, to go there. I mean, I, I know in my life, I've been involved in multiple scenarios where I couldn't see the outcome, but I trusted who I was with. And so, you know, I might not have agreed. I'm, I'm fortunate enough, most of the environments that I've been in, I've either spoken up or I've been asked to contribute, my voice has been heard, and it's duly noted, right? And so, you know, in, in that regard, with contrarians, we have to run the business where we acknowledge people's, you know, complaint, concern, or what they're saying. We affirm them for participating. And then we have a set of criteria that allows us to rise above the disagreement or the argument to say, well, what's the vision that we're committing to? And so, because otherwise everybody's just committed to being right rather than effective, right? And, and I'd rather try a strategy uh, for, a, for a season and then not try anything for, you know, and then have that become our identity. And so that disagree and commit isn't, you know, shaping our identity, but it is shaping our strategy for a season. And that allows us then to go and take a look at, at let's try it this way and see what opens up. And I think that process of being willing to participate and take action, even if things don't always make sense, yeah. especially when they don't make sense, because the problem with our sense making is that our sense making got us away. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I, I have to do something different in order to have something different come out, even if it doesn't always make complete sense to me. But that's the, the benefit of being together, being in community, and being in an organization together where we have different points of view. And that's why the contrarian is not really somebody who, you know, keeps you stuck. They might be a little annoying, but they add a boatload of value to the organization. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> so <laughs> in the context of leadership, which we've, we've obviously been talking so much about, I, I feel like there's this, um, there's, in this moment of demarcation that you're talking about, there's this mo- there's this idea or this um, there's this effort to locate yourself, which for me, as I hear you talk about this process of, of demarcation and rising again, as I look at my life, the hardest part has been being honest and locating where I'm at with current reality. Mm-hmm. because if we don't locate and this is, this goes along with the ready set go that you were talking about I think is that that set is locating where you are and you sit exactly. in that it, you sit in that moment um, but it it's often so difficult I think that's probably one of the things one of the barriers one of the best the greatest barriers that keep people from rising yeah I think I think Chad the, the, the challenge is we often like to uh, think that that's a, a process that we can do on our own. And I would say any type of rite of passage, any type of ritual has some level of community in it. It has some process where other people are involved. I think on my own, uh, I could come to insight. I could come to revelation. I could, I could have a, a major you know, shift in how I view things. But in community, I can rise. In community, I can take that trans, what's translated or revelation that I got, the insight that I got, and I have the, um, the ability to then go and 
act that into you know the rest of my body. One of the challenges you know that I have is you know behavioral change or behavior change in organization is basically getting people to think different in order to act different, right? So I want to move from the head to the hand. Right? How do I get people to think different so that they will take different actions in their world? And my experience is that you can't move from the head to the hand if you don't go through the heart, right? I got to go through what do I really believe, right? And it's basically not just because if I think different, I will act different because that's not true, right? Many of we all know stuff that we don't practice, right? We've got way more information than we have discipline. And because our discipline is a reflection of our beliefs, right? Our behavior is a reflection of what we truly believe. And, and I think that demarcation, that place of, of, of um, moving to set or having that shift requires a, an environment where we're catalytic together. And I also believe, happen to believe, just from a biological point of view, that it requires an immersion style process. You know, most therapy or coaching has this, um, has, a, has a style of ongoing meetings, right? Meet every week for an hour or something like that. And the work that Dan and Adrian does and you guys do and the work that I do, you know, it certainly includes some of those, the, those parts of it, but there's an immersion part. There is a, there is a two-day workshop that we do. If I'm working in an organization, there's a, there's a, there are immersion experiences that we do that allow you to create a, a powerful mirror, if you would, a powerful opportunity for people to get clear about what is so, to create a demarcation around where they've been and where they're going now. I'll tell you, one of the things that happened uh, with a client of mine last week is we, you know, they are at the top of their game in their industry. They are, um, you know, what everybody aspires to be. The people who work there, that's the company you want to land at. The challenge is what got them to be number one is not the same as what will keep them at number one. And they set the standard 25 years ago. And their competitors have slowly been the same standard. And if they don't shift their, their methodology, their process, uh, their expression in the very near term, not only will their competitors rise to the same standard, they will surpass them. And so what we did last week is we had this really two-day intensive to get clear to that positioning. We didn't fix everything. We didn't design the whole future. But we had an immersion process that got people clear about this is how it's been up until now, and what are we going to do from now on? And yeah. I think that is a very important piece to it. Yeah, that when you talk about that, that part, when you say the heart, that metaphor translates to me as the people get their intention, they shift their intention, they, they reinvent their aim, and that aim starts to reinvent the way they think, because they have to reinvent the way they think to hit something new, another target, right? another intention. And that happens, like you said, internally, they've got to, them individually and as a group, they've got to get all of that on the table, like what Oh, you're like this is the way it's been. All the nostalgia of how it's been, how good it's been, how bad it's been, and and then talk about okay, now what are we going to aim at now that we're here? What are we aiming at? And that that involves all kinds of inquiry because people are going to have different their agendas. May, they may not feel their agenda is going to be met if they change their aim. And, and then, yeah, I think Dan, what you, you you just hit on such an important point is. If you even if you just take a look at the epitomology of the word comeback, right? It, it's I mean, there's something severely wrong with the word because it's you're not back backward. You're not going back. You're never going back. And and that's the big part of the the realization. I think the work that we're doing in resilience is people often when they think of resilience is that they want the life that they had before. Sure. Before all this crap happened. Before. I made messed up before I made a mistake, right? And, and the lie that people believe about resilience is that there is a possibility to go back. You can never go back. 
Whatever it was is done with. And it wasn't the way you thought it was. No, because you're nostalgic. Your your brain is lying to you. Yeah. Right? Yes. Like, like I have, I mean, the things that I'm nostalgic about, I realize my brain's lying to me. Like I, oh, I missed the time that I slept in the snow uh, in Bosnia, you know, with freaking, you know, guns shooting above me. There's nothing to be nostalgic about. It's horrible. It was it was dangerous and cold. I'm from Africa, for crying out loud, right? Yeah. But 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 we have nostalgia about shared challenge and shared challenge and achievements that we had before, experiences that were deep. But but what we don't really realize is that resilience is a redefining of the future. Yeah. You don't rise to where you were. You rise to the opportunity that's in front of you. So resilience is not at making a comeback. In fact, resilience is reaching forward. And, and one of the things that I think is really important is that the, the tougher the scenario or the harder the breakdown, the closer you need to bring point B. You know, I, people will, you know, if somebody loses their job or a company goes through a, a restructure, people are like, oh, this is great. You can now do whatever you want to do. People don't have the capacity to do that. They don't have the capacity to, oh, you lost your job. Now you can do whatever you want. That, that's such a ridiculous idea. The idea now is rather than design your whole life, let's design what a good week looks like. What does a good day look like? Yeah, right. And if you can build a good day, you can build that momentum and the capacity to dream for a week or dream for a month, and then it stretches your capacity to the future. And I think part of the important work that we do is creating that frameworks that bring point B closer. I mean, I know in the workshops that you that you guys do, then in the in the Revenant workshop and that type of stuff, you know, people people often come in with this fantastical idea that once they leave the workshop, everything's going to be better by November. And and part of the work is like, no, how about how about you do better today, right here, this moment right here, with this that moment, person, right here, that's right with right. Because if you can't do it with them, you are definitely not going to do it with anybody out there. If you're not willing to pay the price with them, how, what makes you think you're going to pay the price out there when it's much higher? Yeah. Well, it brings, it brings me to the point that comes to mind for me when you're talking about teaming and what happens inside of an organization is that, you know, at least in my experience, and definitely as we're, as we're, lead, as we're going into it, like a leadership offsite, for example, people get really nervous only because I think the intuitive connection between a new future will require new relationships. Right. And like, you know, like they haven't built in the tools for resiliency in the good times to be willing to like for them to be tested in the in the interim. Right. Well, in the, or in the reinvention time, because that's when things are going to get tested, because somebody that I trusted when I knew what he was up to, I knew what I was up to. I knew what we we're going to do tomorrow. I knew what the market was going to do. You don't build in, you know, the capacity to have difficult conversations, as people call them. Uh, which could be like explorations and a, a deep connection points. They haven't practiced that. So they, there's, a, there's a knowing that, oh, shit, I, I'm going to have to actually be a new person with this person uh, in order to build something new so we can build something new between us so we can build something new, you know, inside the business and inside the market. And that's, I mean, a lot of the nervousness that comes up is who will I be now? Like, how are they going to relate to me when I fail? Because, you know, any venture will require failure. So. Sure for the most part, right? So how am I, am I willing to leave this safety of like, you know, well-positioned ego? I know who I am, I know who you are, you know who I am, I have respect around here. Can I be, can I actually fail and, and keep my self-respect and keep this mutual respect? And can we get closer during the times? I just, this is chiming for me. It's like, that's a part of the nervousness that comes up is not knowing what's gonna happen between team members. You know, I think what's, what happens there, Adrian, I mean, this is one of the things, is, there's multiple things that happen, but I think also what happens is people fear that they're not going to be enough. They're not going to be skilled enough. They're not going to be good enough. They're not going to be mature enough. There's this fear that if, if, if I go into this experience, I'm going to be seen and I'm going to be judged and the judgment's going to be that I'm not good enough or that I'm not skilled enough or that I'm not the right person. And somehow this deficiency or this fear of, of inadequacy or, or retribution or being discovered, uh, you know, keeps people hiding. And, and the beauty of the work that we do 
is that even in the crisis, even in your inadequacy, even in your lack of skill, that recognizing or being honest about that state is exactly enough. It is the enough. It is the breeding ground, right? It's the, it is the redemption story, right? That says, from the ancient texts, as you call them, it says, God takes beauty from ashes, right? It's the, the, the story from multiple places, the, the rise of the phoenix, right? The phoenix that rises from the ashes. I mean, I get goosey when I think about that stuff, because to me, that is, that is ultimately what I get passionate about. And what seems so paradoxical and un unavailable in the moment that in our darkest despair, that that rising is available, right? That's where Joseph Campbell says, the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure that you seek. And it's when we go in there, in that inadequacy, in that place of feeling like, you know, what if I get seen or what if I, I don't have what it takes to get to this next level? In that place, in, and that's part of the work that we do, is we hold that frame that's very uncomfortable. We move somebody from ready to set. And in there, the beauty is you discover that in the adequacy, inadequacy, there is provision. In the connection, in the honesty, in the demarcation, in coming to this current moment, the phoenix starts rising, the feathers start coming out, the music changes, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, but it's uh, the uh, what comes to mind for me is like performance follows presence. Yes, that's and good. Part of what it's like, can I own? I know for me, can I own what's here for me internally? Can I own what's here for me externally? If I can do those things, then I got a shot, right? Because then I'm actually connected deeply to current reality and I'm owning it. Here I am, not running anywhere. All the good and all the bad, I'm willing to absorb it all, transform it all. I'm a part, I'm committed to being part of the solution, no matter how bad it looks. And there's a, you know, for us, we call this naked leadership podcast because there's a nakedness there. There's a seenness there, there's an ownership there, there's a, you know, and for me, I, I get goosey as well, as you say. I get goosey just thinking about how much, I mean, we were just in a, in a coach's academy yesterday and debriefing with a with a, a guy that's being trained out of coach, he was having a hard time connecting with this client that we were doing this um, a role play with. And, but that, that was the stance is like, is that he was looking for is like, Hey, wherever this person is, I'm okay. Are you really where I am? And I'm standing right here. I'm not going anywhere um, until we, until we get connected so we can go somewhere new together. Exactly. There's power in that. I mean, absolutely. I mean, Very good. Yeah. Well, and it's that's the feel. That's the feel. When I when I get around a leader, that's like, wow, this guy's here. Holy cow. That's like the distinction. You know, I can I can't hear their brain as much as I can feel them as a person. Yeah. And I think that that's a skill set, right? There's a there's a distinct framework of being able to get people into that moment, and then the work starts, right? Because now. You know, I mean, we got all excited about getting somebody from ready to set, but make no mistake, the gun will go up and you've got to run that race, right? <laughs> There's work to be done. And, and you know, I, I think for me, the, the key is that great coaching and leadership architecture is being able to create frameworks where we can prepare somebody for a race, get them into the starting block, get to that really difficult moment of moving them from ready to set where there's high anticipation, has to be clarity and honesty. And then when the gun goes, you know, they run. And make no mistake, I'm not one of those coaches that that's you know just stand by the sideline watching, right? I'm I'm probably the guy who shouts this loud and I want to encourage them, I want them to run the race. And it's you know it's frustrating sometimes to be on the sideline. Right? I'd like to run myself. And I think that the, the key for for us as as leadership developers is consistently being able to reinvent, how am I doing the frame? How can I take my athlete and the people that I'm working with to the next level? Because there's new stuff coming up. And, um, and I think what you guys do so incredibly well and, and are ma masters at is the ability to create that immersion experience and in order to create that demarcation so that people can say, okay, I'm now moving out of that place of, of identifying only with the negative, but owning it, and then moving to what's next. And in, in a very big way, much of the work that I believe that you guys do and that I do 
is creating rites of passage for people to move to that next level and true resilience, which is rising to the future. Yeah, that's great. What's the work you do so well, man? I, we've had the pleasure, I've had the pleasure of working with you for almost 20 years, over 20 years, right? Yeah, 20 years, really. just and just that over 20. Just everything we've done together has been so exciting. We've, and we've had some great laughs and sure have. some real great, you know, it's funny how the flame bonds you, you know, like you were talking about, you get down in the midst of a failure and you hang in together. And as you come through the other side, it's just you're different people and the relationship is new on the other end. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's what I feel like a lot of camaraderie with you. I mean, we know each other at some level. Every time, every time I get around you, I'm like, oh, wow, I want more time with Andre. Yeah, Mostly because, and I, I have this experience with my favorite clients as well, because there's a bond that's there. There's a, there's a understanding that's there. There's an advocacy that's there. There's a connection that's there. It's like, oh, because uh, people that are throwing themselves at something understand suffering. Mm-hmm. Like, like the choice, like to, to decide that li- like I'm going to make, I'm going to choose now that my life will matter. Mm-hmm. That is a, a pretty rare choice among humans. Yep. Meaning like, like, like I'm gonna make the biggest difference possible. Like that's not the normal um, machinery at play. No. So there's like a connection point of folks that's like, wow, he's throwing himself or he or she's throwing himself at something. And there's a camaraderie that happens. I always feel that when I'm around you, man, because I, I just love the way you approach life and the way you throw yourself at. I always learn so much. I've got so many notes here that I'm gonna steal and use with my clients, so thank you. There is no stealing, Adrian, right? When I, when I went to seminary, the, 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 uh, my lecturer there said, the first time that you steal somebody's stuff, you refer to them. You said, hey, I heard Hendre say this. The second time you use it, you say, I heard a guy say it. And then the third time you say, as I always say. <laughs> Have at it, my friend. Steal, steal like an artist. Great <laughs> book. That's right. Andre, you've, you've been so generous with your time today and with your ideas, and, and you really brought it to the call, so thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me today, so I'd appreciate it. I, I'm so honored to be in this conversation as usual. I'm so grateful. Uh, you've got a few things to offer those that listen. You have a book? Yes, uh, I have Can a talk book. Talk about that? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Uh, there's a book I wrote called Shiftability, which really talks about, uh, uh, it's for leaders and, and in particular for salespeople. My friend Mill, who runs um, sales and is the head of sales and business development over at Microchip Technology. Um, he created the only non-commissioned sales organization in the industry. It's unprecedented. And they've had 129 consecutive quarters of profitability growing year on year. Um, and he's done this by doing something that was said it's going to be done. He's got a non, you know, a no commission based sales force of 1,800 people around the world. So it's it's amazing. And so you know, it's it's learning from that. How do we create a purposeful environment? And how do you create that environment where people can actually shift? So shiftability is out there. Um, you can go to my Instagram, which is this Hendre.Kutsia. Um, I'm learning to be better. You guys are much better at the social media stuff. I'm learning to be better about that. I, I also feel like I was hiding here for a couple of years, just trying to process a whole bunch of my own stuff and feel like I'm rising to it and coming out again into what are some of the things that I believe in and what I want to put, put, put vision towards. Uh, and I'm currently working on uh, a series called Rise, right? So how do I rise from failure? How do I rise from bro- brokenness? How do I rise from a summit? If I've reached a certain summit and I need to kind of go through the valley exit to the next one, how do I rise from there? So I'm working on a series called Rise, uh, which is talking about resilience and what that really means. And so, you know, look out for that stuff. From a public point of view, um, later in the year, uh, we are going to do what we call coaching labs. Uh, This is not a certification process. This is a a process. uh, It's an opportunity for people who are already certified, know what they're doing, and have gone to that next level and uh, are looking for some advanced tools it's mixed with neuroscience, but it's a peer group um, experience. So it's not a lecture. I'm not going to be in there teaching stuff. It is, um, you know, so there's quite a, a high uh, requirement for people to be in there. 
and um, and and the ideas that we set together as peers, and and we talk specifically about how we are coaching in the corporate environment. So it's it's for people who are working with the C-suite, and so you know it'll be stuff that uh, Dan and, and Adrian and I explore together, and and other things together, and we'll we'll take a look at how we can uh, cooperate, partner, and and do some of that stuff together. So oh, I love that. that stuff later in the year. Great, great to hear. First, I heard of that. That's exciting, Andre. Yeah, well, you know, it's in the planning phase, so you know, it's it's uh, we've got a we've got a lot to talk about. <laughs> anyway, but there's out there. Let's go. Let's go make something. That's right. We're in. Time to have a drink. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Thank you. I gotta jump, guys. Have an amazing day. All right, brother. Take care. Well, I hope you were taking some notes. I sure was. That was a great conversation with Hendre. Again, his book is called Shiftability. You should check that out. We're so grateful to Hendre for taking his time and being generous to have this conversation with us. If you've gotten any goodness out of this podcast so far, we encourage you, please, to go to iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a five-star rating and a glowing review. This helps us grow, build the community, and create better and better content. Also, the best compliment you can give us is sharing this podcast with the leaders in your life, those who are sick of the typical conversations around leadership and ready to get real. We're coming at you next week with another conversation on the Naked Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Lead on. Lead on.